shame. Your failures are not final. Written by Bishop C.M. Wright. Unresolved shame is the most debilitating spiritual condition with which we contend today. It is the root cause of almost all Christian inconsistency, and it is the primary reason many do not pray. It is the foundational reason for almost all backsliding. Let's examine shame and its effect upon the lives of God's people within these next few weeks. This is what we'll be going over, and I hope that you enjoy it. If you need the notes for this lesson series, they are on our link tree, which is on our Instagram and in the description of this podcast. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Breaking Apostolic Taboo, where we do our series that we do because we not only we want to um, speak about things that are hard and that we don't really talk about much in church, we also like to help give you tools in order to combat some of these things that we deal with every single day. And so we've done several different lesson series, but today we're going to work and start the shame. Shame. Your Failures Are Not Final series, written by, uh, let's see, I forget his name, uh, Bishop C.M. Wright. And um, my church has done this for several months now, and it is by far one of the best tools we've used with helping people overcome shame. And so, and I've gone through this a couple times myself, so I just wanted to uh, do this here on the podcast. We're going to do two sessions, or not two sessions a week, we're going to go over two sections a week in our podcast. So I wanted to start with the foreword today that was written by Larry Schnuver. Schnuver, I probably said that wrong, but oh well. I was first introduced to the teaching of shame while attending a conference in Wisconsin several years ago. My younger sister had recently died at the age of 32, having been diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. While listening to Bishop Wright's teaching on shame, I realized why my sister drowned herself in alcohol to cover her pain. I would later get the chance to share this with Bishop Wright and explain to him the thoughts that came to us while we sat listening to his his brief introduction of shame. He called it, your failures are not final. I then realized most of my friends, family, and acquaintances could really benefit from the teaching and really were in need of the ministry. About one year later, I At my invitation, Bishop Wright came to the congregation where I oversee to share this much-needed teaching. I sat amazed as I watched 100% of the people respond to this teaching. When individuals realized their adverse effects of their own negative feelings about themselves and how these feelings were keeping them from fulfilling their own personal calling in the body of Christ, they readily received ministry to be healed of it. It has been a process for me to understand the effects of shame and to recognize its varied sources. Once being ministered to for it and an ongoing study of God's word to understand it, I have been able to help others to find their place in the body and become whole as Jesus intended. So, shame. Your failures are not final. Unresolved shame is the most debilitating spiritual uh, condition with which we contend today. It is the root cause of almost all Christian inconsistency. It is the primary reason many do not pray. It is the foundational reason for almost all backsliding. Let's examine shame and its effect upon the lives of God's people. Like the Lord, let's start with the end before the beginning. 
What is the most important result of the church when the people of God are free from shame? The removal of shame from the lives of God's people is the last step before the promised outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the last days. In Joel 2, 25-28, it says, And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath uh, dealt wondrously with you, and and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." Twice in this text, the Lord promised that his people would never be ashamed. How do we as people get to that place today? Also, how do we receive the promise of of outpouring that shall come to pass afterward? After what? Because of the proximity of the absence of shame to the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, it is imperative that we understand what shame is and how to deal with it. When we are truly free from shame, God will be able to give us revival and we will be able to receive it. The prerequisites to outpouring is restoration. What is restoration? He has a whole long list of what restoration is. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read you most of it. It is a prim, uh, sh- uh, shalom, uh, a primitive root to be safe in mind, body, or state, figuratively to be uh Uh, to be complete an implication to be friendly by extension um, to reciprocate Uh, in the KJV make amends um, make an end finish full give again make good pay again make to be at peace or peaceable that is the perfect that is perfect perform prosper recomp Recompense, render, um, restore to recompense, reward, be whole, be complete, sound. Restore also means to be in covenant of peace, to be at peace, to complete, to finish, to make safe, to make whole or good, to restore, to make uh, compensation, to be performed, to be repaid, to be requited, to complete, to perform, to make an end of. The outpouring shall take place after what? Afterwards is the translation of the two Hebrew words, um, are and kin. And there's a whole uh, whole bunch of definitions, honestly. Um, Ahar behind, after. Ahar as a preposition can have a local um, spital significance such as behind and the man said they are departed hence for I heard them say let us go to Dothan Genesis thirty seven seventeen. as such it can mean follow after and also the king that reigneth over you will continue to follow or continue following the Lord your God First Samuel twelve fourteen. Ahar can signify after with a temporal emphasis and Noah lived after the flood there 350 years, Genesis 9, 28. The first biblical occurrence of the word. Justin Wright. Um, and the KJV, after that, this, uh, afterwards, 
um, as much as yet because following how be it, this is talking about Justin Wright. So Justin Wright, um, a word that is used to either use that is used either as an adverb or an adjective, depending on the context of the sentence. The word is derived from the verb meaning to stand upright or to establish. As an adjective, it means correct according to the established standard numbers 27-7, upright and honest in Genesis 42-11. So Justin Wright, um, as, a, as an adverb, is so, therefore, thus, thus, so, just so, therefore, so on and so forth. Um, right, just, honest, and true, correct, true, uh, all this other stuff. Okay, anyways. So, it is time for res- restoration. The general meaning behind the root is completion and fulfillment of entering into a state of wholeness and unity and restored relationship. So, before we can have a restored relationship, we must first understand about the importance of the relationships that the Lord gives priority to in our lives. So, we're going to talk about relationships. We must obey the greatest and second greatest commands of the Bible. If we are to please God and be his children, we must do these. Number one, Jesus declared these two commandments to be the greatest in Mark 12, 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, name, uh, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. These two commandments define the three fundamental relationships in life. These relationships are, one, my relationship with God, two, my relationship with others, and three, my relationship with myself. The pivotal relationship of the three is the way I feel about myself. Whether or not I am able to love myself affects my ability to love God and others. If I believe that I am unlovable, I will refuse to allow God to love me. If I convince myself that I am not worthy of his love, I will reject his love. Therefore, I become uninvolved, and he cannot love me against my will. Esteem for myself cannot come from myself. Accepting my worth can not come from myself. My only scriptural source for of the understanding of, of the worth of self is the revelation of God's love for me. I must be worth a tremendous amount to him because he died for me. 1 John 3.16 Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Romans 8.31-32 uh, through 32 says What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up from us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Accepting his love without reservation is the channel through which I receive everything that God does for me, naturally and spiritually. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. So, uh, 1 John 4.19 in the Living Bible says, So you see, our love for him comes as a result of his loving us first. 
in the Bible basic or in the Bible in basic English it says we have the power of loving because he first had loved us or love for us. First John 4:19 in the Message Bible says we through we though are going or we though are going to love love and be loved first we were loved now we love he loved us first in the complete jewish bible it says we ourselves love now because he loved us first his love is the conduit through which all of his blessings flow to us if I will not allow him to love me unconditionally, he cannot save me, heal me, supply my needs, or answer my prayers. He will not meet my needs for the purpose of enabling me to feel that I have earned something from him. He only meets our needs to co- uh, communicate to us how he feels about us. He loves us because of who we are, not because of what we do. Shame prevents us from believing this. My performance does not produce a relationship. My relationship with him produces performance. My cap- capability for loving others is severely diminished when I do not love myself. Mark twelve thirty one and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. In the Living Bible, it says you must love others as much as yourself. In today's English version, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The Message Bible, love others as well as you love yourself. Easy to read Bible, love your neighbor the same as you love yourself. Contemporary English version, love others as much as you love yourself. Loving others is the fundamental element of revival. If my inability to let God help me to love myself hinders his ability to love others through me, my shame then becomes an impassable roadblock to revival. Thus, outpouring in Joel 2.28 is promised after our restoration to uh, wholeness. The question is, what needs to be restored? The Lord created us in his image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, And God said, Let us make a man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God. And 1 Corinthians eleven seven, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. When we look at image, where it's talking about likeness, it means uh, literally statue, profile, or figuratively representation and resemblance. The word involves the two ideas of representation and manifestation. Yet this image is not merely an external resemblance. In Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. When we look at conformed, we see it means jointly formed or uh, similar. Uh, This verb has more um, a special reference to that which is essential in character and thus complete or durable, not merely a form or outline. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your responsible service. 
and be and do and be oh my god and be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is or what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god and when we look at conformed and conformable it means to a fashion or shape one thing like another um it is essential and a character and thus complete or durable, not merely a form or an outline. So why do we need to be conformed into his image? Because as man thinks in his heart, Proverbs 23, 7, about himself, so is he. Thoughts produce actions. Wrong thinking equals wrong actions. My feelings about myself produce wrong thoughts about myself. Wrong wrong thoughts prevent me from doing right actions. Thus, I cannot do the will of God. I must be transformed into his image of me so that I will think the thoughts that he wants me to think. This will enable me to do the actions he wants me to do. Thus, to be transformed, I need my mind, thinking thoughts, feelings, etc. to be. (coughs) We are to become his image and his character the seed of this image was implanted in us at our creation but sin and shame began to immediately attack it trying to change it the new birth was intended to restore this image yet for those of us with shame we needed the lord to begin an inner transformation that would bring us to the place of becoming what god has intended us for us to be for this to happen we needed a metamorphosis to break out of the cocoon and allow the new nature to live free seeing and believing this image that god created us to be one able to act the way the lord wants us to and to be able to conduct of god or to be a conduct of god to this world as part of his purpose in the earth the beginning of the process of the restoration of restoration and the Lord's image in us to cast down all imaginations, false images and ourselves that the adversary has put within us. Second Corinthians 10, three through six says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ and having and a readiness to re, uh, revenge all disobedience when your obedience is full uh, fulfilled. To do this, the Lord wants to give us a saved mind. Second Timothy one seven says, "For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind." A renewed mind is needed so that we can think right about ourselves. Romans 12, 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our thoughts about ourselves proceed from our emotions. Any emotions which cause us to have the wrong or inaccurate thoughts about ourselves must be dealt with and conformed and resolved. The Greek word for love in the first two relationships is agape. Therefore, the implied word for loving myself must also be agape. Agape love has its source in God alone. It is not possible for us to produce a love that satisfies God's criteria of what constitutes love through our own strength or human emotions. We must allow God to enable us to love him. 
We must allow God to love others through us. It is vitally important that we allow God to help us love ourselves. The presence of shame is the absence of love or the loss of love and leads to the destruction of self-esteem. This ex- the, or the extreme of this is discussed below. When you shame a person, it hurts. Shaming is the purposeful assault of the soul that the inner spirit which an- animates the person. When shamed, the victim marshals its resources to protect the soul. Normally, an individual has sufficient self-esteem to survive most attacks and has the ability to change or exit the situation. However, in situations where self-esteem is insufficient, presented or on my word, persistent and severe attacks may reach the inner core of the soul, leading to the response of rage and violence. I don't know what this word is. <laughs> okay, so when the assault is extreme and inescapable, as many happen in child abuse, the result can be the soul murder, leaving the psych- uh, sociopath a physical body inhabited by a dead soul, a living machine that can kill or mammon without feeling or remorse. Uh, that was June Hussey in, in 1999. The following quotes are from Violence, Our Deadly Epidemic and Its Causes by Gilligan James in 1996. Soul needs love as vitally as the lungs need oxygen. Without it, the soul dies just as the body does with, without oxygen. Shame deadens the feelings of being human and leads to, to rage. The sources of love for the self are love from others and one's own love for oneself. Children who fail to receive sufficient love from one from others fail to build up uh, re, uh, build up reserves of self-love and the capacity for self-love, which enables them to survive the inevitable rejections of, and humiliations which even the most fortunate of people cannot avoid. Without feelings of love, the self feels numb, empty, and dead. To be overwhelmed by shame and humiliation causes the destruction of self-esteem. Without a certain amount of self-esteem, the self collapses and the soul dies. But a joyless life is a synonym, synonym for hell. A man who does not love and cannot love is, the in, is in effect condemned to hell. His entire environment from which without love he is cut off is without enjoyment for him. And thus, the world he lives in is a source of emptiness and emotional suffocation for him. Both the world and the self are experienced and perceived emotionally as being dead, inanimate, without a soul, without feelings. Since the sense of aliveness and humanness that comes from loving includes vulnerability to pain, only those who are capable of risking pain can experience joy. Emotional health is not the absence of pain. Is the capacity to bear painful feelings when they occur without letting them stop us from loving others and continuing to feel worthy of love ourselves. A person can expose himself to the vulnerability of loving another person only if he has enough self-esteem to protect himself from the devastation he would suffer if that love were not rep- er, reciprocated. 
He cannot afford to give to another the love which he cannot give himself. If he has taken the chance and lost the results, can be immediately and devastatingly lethal to others and to himself without love, by which I mean here love for oneself. The self collapses, the soul dies, the psyche goes to hell. Men will quickly and ferociously attack others, even kill them if they think that it will prevent their own souls from being murdered. What they immediately discover when they commit a violent act, however, is that this strategy is self-defeating, and that is why in so many murderers finally or that is why so many murderers finally decided to end their own lives as well. In other words, to love something or someone is to enjoy it or him or her and where there is joy there is love Uh, conversely where there is no love there is no joy this is the condition called hell in the theological language and the cause of lovelessness the incapacity for love is joylessness incapacity for joy and vice versa the chief causes of incapacity for love and joy are shame, the lack of self-love, which inhibits love of others and su- stimulates hatred toward them and fear of them instead, and guilt, the presence of self-hate, which inhibits self-love and stimulates fear and con- uh, condemnation of one's own hostile and destructive impulses and wishes. Among the clinical and behavioral syndrome, syndromes caused by shame and are paranoia, narcissism, sociopath, uh, selfishness, sadism, and revenge, whereas guilt causes, among other things, depression, uh, self-punishment, self-sacrifice, matronism, and masochism. I can't talk today. So, those were that was the first two sessions of shame. I hope you were able to get something out of that. Next week, we're going to talk about um, shame uh, is a group. Oh, I can't read that. Sources of shame. We're going to be talking about sources of shame. I can't talk, but those were the lessons for this week. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you join us um, for our next session. And this is Bailey Romans, and this is Breaking Apostolic Taboo. Let's start talking.